everybody. Welcome back to Thinking Theologically, the show where we teach you how and why you should think theologically. I'm one of your hosts, Jack Dodge, and joined as always by our resident theologian in training, Spencer Shaw. Spencer, how you doing? I'm doing good. Doing good. Uh, actually, I would say I'm, I'm in a oddly good mood. More good mood than usual. Yeah. We were talking about before. I'm a big Ed Sheeran fan. I don't think I've ever said that on the podcast. You have not. Um, but huge Ed Sheeran fan. Well, he just announced his uh, uh, American tour last week, something yeah. like that. Tickets go on sale Friday. Pre-sale tickets started today, and I got in and got uh, early access to tickets and got my tickets. And I've never seen him in concert before. It's on my bucket list. This is it's on your it. bucket list. So this okay. is. Listen, there's no judgment here for me about bucket. I lists get to check it off. So anything. it's like I've, I've got to. I'm too big of a fan not to see him in concert before I die. So fair enough. Fair enough. Most of the most of the bands that I enjoy, though, I'm branching more into other things. But a lot of the bands that I enjoy the most are dead or somewhat dead. Uh, so. <laughs> so I don't See, have Ed the... Sheeran's like my age. So <laughs> that's like seeing a it's like seeing a friend of yours. A peer, a colleague, perhaps. So I'm hoping to get to see him more than just the one time, but it's I'm gonna make sure and take advantage so I see him at least one time in concert. I was able... he doesn't Go ahead. He he doesn't tour a ton. Like he's not one that's always on tour. Really? Yeah. Huh. I would think that he yeah. would go around. He's pretty popular, so I think he would go around. Uh, I was fortunate enough to see uh, a band from Canada called Rush three times before the drummer died. Oh, man. Two years ago? Three years ago? So I got, I got to see him. They were always, always good. So that was one of the bands that I could watch. Uh, the other two bands. And all, and all my favorite bands, the drummer dies. Well. That's the if we were to do a theology of band, Jack's band enjoyment and the longevity of the drummer, die. Yeah. <laughs> not so good. It's like spinal. You pro, I don't know if you've ever seen Spinal Tap, but where the drummer spontaneously combusts. It's like if I like your band, your drummer will die. So, uh, so any musicians listening to the podcast, do not send me your stuff. Well, you don't like drummer. Ed Sheeran. He does all of his own stuff, so he's <laughs> technically the drummer as well. So. Only a part of him will die, perhaps. Who knows? Uh, don't don't kill him. <laughs> Thanks for uh, coming to uh, the show this week, everyone. Where uh, we could honestly probably do a very long episode talking about music uh, and things that we enjoy and don't enjoy, and uh, splitting apart uh, which music is uh, good and bad. Uh, like country music, obviously. I think we, I think you and I disagree on whether it's yeah, good or not. Yeah, I'm a country music fan. I hate it. Uh, but welcome back to Thinking Theologically. We decided that uh, we had had enough talking about sex and marriage, and we're ready to move on to an entirely different topic. Uh, one that, I mean, I suppose it's been a while. We had our New Heavens, New Earth discussion, then we had the sex and marriage discussion from two different uh, points of view. Over the last couple episodes, this is a kind of return to really uh, 
using a particular lens to look through and work through a question. Uh, these questions didn't just come from uh, like user submitted or from our own brain or something like that. Uh, it actually came from a survey. Spencer will talk more about that uh, in just a little bit. But before we get there, I want to remind you about thinkingtheologically.org. By the time this episode goes up, we're recording it a little bit ahead of time because of some travel stuff that's going on. By the time this episode goes up, there should be a, a bonus lesson on homosexuality up on thinkingtheologically.org. So if you never check out the website, you miss that entirely. Uh, if you're not uh, liking us on Facebook, you've missed it entirely uh, unless you just happen to stumble upon it. So uh, make sure you go to thinkingtheologically.org. You check out the Facebook page, Thinking Theologically. You can also get a hold of us there uh, and on our personal Facebook accounts. Any other social media account that exists uh, for Spencer. Uh, and I'm, I'm there. <laughs> he's there. And at our email, uh, strongchurchministries at gmail.com uh, with any comments, questions, topics for future episodes, or if you just want to critique us over some of the stuff that we've talked about. Uh, we're moving into, I think, several episodes looking at uh, some statements made on a recent uh, theological survey. Uh, engaging kind of where different uh, groups of people were at, uh, adults, U.S. adults versus uh, those within evangelical uh, categories, uh, and breaking down kind of what people believe uh, about those statements. Uh, out of, did you say there were 35 of them, right? Something like 35 or 36? Uh, yeah, I just, I've got it pulled up here. Yep, there's 35 statements. Um, a considerable number of them were ones that Spencer was looking over and going, yeah, we should probably talk about these things. Uh, some of them will be packaged together. Others may be split apart. But we wanted to go through uh, part of that survey, and I suppose I'll link that uh, within the show notes uh, so that you can go see it too if you are uh, listening at home. Uh, and that's the plan, uh, is to go through those types of things. And that's where today's episode comes from. Was Jesus God? You may already know what you think about this particular subject, but it's an interesting study and a, a nice little practice in thinking theologically. So that's what we're going to pursue today. Uh, Spencer, I brought up the survey already a little bit, uh, but what are some, uh, maybe the background of the survey or some other things that I, I didn't get into that you want to talk about uh, in regard to the survey. Yeah, so the, the, this survey is done by LifeWay. I don't think it's just them. I think they partner with some other people to do it. But uh, LifeWay Christians, kind of the driving force for this survey. And they've actually been doing this survey every two years, since 2014 at least. On the website, you can actually look at results all the way back to 2014, yeah. and you can. Uh, I, I didn't spend a whole lot of time doing it, but you can kind of see even the way that people's beliefs on certain questions have changed. A lot of the questions are the same every year; they aren't all the same. New ones are added, some are taken away, some things like that. But the, a lot of the questions have been the same uh, since 2014, and so you can kind of see the way that Americans' views about. Uh, religion and God and theology and the Bible and how those have changed over time. Uh, but LifeWay did it in uh, 2022. So this year was the, the most recent survey that they've done. 
And it can be found at, Jack said he'll, we'll make sure and, and link it, but it's the stateoftheology.com. And the point is to ask these questions and kind of gauge the state of theology in the United States. What's the theological atmosphere and beliefs and those kinds of things in the United States? And so, like I said, every couple of years, they put out the survey. What they do is they give the respondents a list of, like I said, 35 statements that the respondents respond to of whether they strongly agree, somewhat agree, they're not sure, they somewhat disagree, or they strongly disagree. And they answer that on each question. LifeWay compiles the data, uh, puts it up on this website, as I've mentioned. And so when when we talk about in this episode and some of the, the future ones about some of the questions that were answered in ways that we kind of seem problematic or concerning about what people tend to believe about certain topics. Uh, we'll also divide it up. So the, the survey tries to figure out what first U.S. adults in general think about it, but then also specifically what evangelicals in the United States believe about it. And I think we've talked before about the, this broader term evangelical, uh, which is kind of a term that it's very difficult to define because partly because different people define it differently, uh, different and then different people who would call themselves evangelicals sometimes have very different differing beliefs. So I think kind of at the core, I would define evangelicalism as just the general conservative, maybe traditional Christian thread in the United States. Uh, it's kind of hard to nail down specific beliefs that fall into that. Uh, because there's some differences, sure. but uh, it generally has to do with kind of firm beliefs about Jesus, you know, being God and being the only way to access God and to have salvation, generally firm beliefs about scripture and inspiration and authority, you know, high authority of, ins of uh, scripture. Scripture has been inspired. Uh, Christian is uh, scripture is inerrant. Those kinds of things are typical beliefs that you find within people and churches that claim to be evangelical. And so I would say that generally we in, in churches of Christ, a lot of our beliefs fall into what most evangelicals in the United States would believe. And so when you kind of look at what evangelicals, what more traditional conservative Christians tend to think about things, I think it very much can be an insight into probably what quite a few people in our churches and churches of Christ believe as well. Um, because what our people think is typically not that different than what the average people like us think. Hmm. Um, and so I think it kind of gives it an insight uh, into some issues, not just within the United States as a whole, which is important, I think, for our uh, discussions with uh, non-Christians, our evangelism, but also uh, people and kids and stuff like that that are going to be out in the real world and encountering some different beliefs and opinions as well. Uh, but then also, like I said, maybe some things that are even going on in our own churches, some questions some of our own people may have that we don't even realize. And so... The, the first two survey results that we're going to be discussing in this episode are one statement was Jesus is the first and greatest being created 
by God. There are some words I want to focus in on that statement. It's saying that Jesus is a created being by God. He may be the first, he may be the greatest, but that he is a created being by God. And responding to this, U.S. adults in general, 40% strongly agreed that Jesus is a created being by God. Uh, 15% somewhat agreed and 13% were not sure. So that's 55% of U.S. adults. So more than half the majority believe that Jesus was the first and greatest being who God created. And then 13%, uh, so you now get up to almost 70% of people uh, that agree with that, or at least not sure about it, whether or not Jesus was the the first created being. And this is even more interesting to me. With an evangelical, 70% strongly agreed that Jesus was the first and greatest created being. Only 3% somewhat agreed and 5% were not sure. So there's not that many uh, evangelicals in kind of the middle section, but 70% strongly agreed that Jesus was the first and greatest created being. The second statement is Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Among U.S. adults, 31% strongly agreed. A 22% somewhat agreed. So that's 43%. Almost half of U.S. adults think that Jesus was just a good teacher and he was not God. 11% are not sure. So now you have over 50%, over half of U.S. adults, are at minimum not sure whether Jesus was God. If not, in their mind, sure that Jesus was not God and just a great teacher. Uh, among evangelicals, it's uh, better, but not as good as you would hope. Uh, 29% strongly agree. A 15% somewhat agree. So you're still in the 40-something per- percent there. Uh, yeah. Don't think that Jesus was God and just a great teacher. Only 3% were not sure. Uh, But that gets you pretty close to half of evangelicals are just not sure. Over half of U.S. adults and almost half of evangelicals are either not sure whether Jesus was God or not, or in their minds, like I said, are sure that Jesus was uh, not God and just a great teacher. Or And that's kind of connected with Jesus being created by God. Maybe he's the first and greatest being created by God, but still not God, a created being, maybe just a great teacher. So there's a lot of confusion there about who Jesus is. And we've talked about this in previous episodes and that as Christians, I think at the core of our faith is that Jesus is God. Our our faith, I believe, falls apart if Jesus is not God. And so that's a crucial question. I think that is, I would argue, the most important question for Christians. If we agree on anything, it ought to be that Jesus is God because everything else kind of starts falling apart Mm. if he's not God. And so that's why kind of that's why this is where we're starting, because to me, reading that it is troubling that it does seem the majority of Americans and at least close to the majority, depending on how you average out those two questions of evangelicals, um, don't believe that Jesus was God. Either he was a great teacher and not God, 
Maybe he was this great being, the first and greatest, but still created by God, which is very troubling because, like I said, I think our faith begins to fall apart if Jesus wasn't God. And so I think this is an important question for us to think about and to talk about, like I said, not only maybe there are some listening who have had questions about whether or not Jesus is God. I'm sure you will talk to people, especially based on the data out in the uh, world and evangelism and conversations who have questions about whether Jesus is God or don't believe that Jesus is God. But based on the evangelical response, I would probably argue that there are most likely people in your congregations who are struggling with this question about the identity of Jesus. Was Jesus actually God? Yeah, uh, this is... uh... This is rather interesting, especially that here. The most interesting part to me is the great teacher, but not God, and the strongly agree being a two percent difference. Uh, yeah, that's not substantive at all <laughs> of a difference. That is, it's almost exactly the same. Uh, just incredible, and I immediately thought about the uh, uh, the classic uh, Lord liar lunatic argument of C.S. Lewis and. Mm. Others, as it's been stated, but uh, the whole point of that being he can't just be a great teacher. He's got to be uh, one of those three things, Lord, liar, or lunatic. But that's seemingly been lost uh, here uh, with at least, uh, I don't want to say a generation, uh, but with a group of people. Did did the survey specify, do you know off the top of your head, specify uh, age range, or is it just these two categories of adults and evangelicals? Um, It says that a demographically balanced online panel was used for interviewing interviewing American adults. So So just 18 and up. It should have been all because you can actually go into the results and look at uh, language, uh, look at ages. Okay. um, And, filter it based on ages so um well if you're if you're see, so so like 18 i'm looking right now 18 okay. to 34 year olds 31 percent strongly agreed that jesus was a great teacher but was not god so the same there's not okay a change uh when you look at the younger demographic the older demographic so if you went to 65 plus it does drop down to 27 percent uh, still not a lot i mean like. um and you've got 39 percent that strongly disagree as a pair as compared to only 27 percent of general u.s okay uh so uh, there is a little bit of a shift it does seem when you get to the older um but i mean when you look at 50 to 64 year old it's only a one percent difference yeah so that seems to be one of those like uh Joshua into Judges sort of scenarios of there was some stuff within the previous generation that did a lot of good things but didn't completely finish the job. And as the next generation came up, it just kind of took that a little more and and ran with it, as is the case with uh, generations throughout all time. Uh, it appears. So that's interesting. Uh, so what I'm trying to say there, uh, for those listening is, uh, you can look at the millennial generation, uh, all you want and say, well, it seems to be mostly that group. It's like, well, 
apparently it was a teaching that was passed down to us uh, to some degree. Uh, it wasn't really dealt with. Yeah, so I, I think at least for most of us listening, probably we've got a question of, well, why is there so much confusion? I mean, e even if uh, you're on a, if you're listening to this and you've got a different belief about Jesus than we do, I, I think you still have the question of, well, why does there seem to be so much confusion, right? Because most of us, you know, maybe we believe, yeah, Jesus being God is at the core of our faith. Or even if you don't have a belief in, in God, I'm sure you know Christians that would claim that. And it seems pretty split, like especially Jesus being a great teacher from God. It's pretty close to 50-50 uh, for both U.S. adults and evangelicals. I mean, that, that question is pretty split. Uh, at least among U.S. adults, Jesus being the first and greatest being created by God is kind of the same thing. It's pretty split. Uh, so why is there so much confusion I, is kind of where I would want to start thinking about this question. And I would answer that in saying I think there's so much confusion because the Bible's actually a lot less clear on the issue than many Christians want to admit uh, that is that if if you just kind of read through casually the New Testament you know maybe you're not a believer maybe you have questions you're casually reading through the New Testament is not as explicit on Jesus being God as maybe we would want it to be and I would say definitely not as explicit as most Christians think I think most Christians would say, yeah, if you read through the Bible, it, it's the, it's pretty explicit that Jesus was God. I, I would say maybe even those who don't think that Jesus would God, was God would say, well, Scripture claims that pretty emphatically. Um, I, a lot of non-Christians that I know I would say that. Um, but it's actually not quite as clear as maybe many of us would hope it would be. And I want to illustrate that point by looking at the New Testament evidence. How does the New Testament describe Jesus? But I want to follow that evidence from the earliest evidence to the latest evidence. Uh, so from the first books written to the last books written. And because it's interesting, you'll actually see a trend of almost a development of language from the beginning days of Christianity to the end of the first century age of Christianity. So if you begin at the beginning, uh, the, the first books that were written were uh, by Paul. Uh, Paul's letters are, are the earliest records that we have in the New Testament. Um, if this interests you, I would actually encourage you, you can Google and actually just go to Wikipedia and look at the dates of the books of the New Testament and just kind of kind of an interesting exercise. But uh, the earliest books that we have are books written by Paul. And when you look at, at Paul and how Paul describes Jesus, uh, Paul actually never explicitly calls Jesus God, but he does come close to it. Uh, maybe you could argue as close as you can come without actually calling Jesus God. So some examples. In Philippians chapter 2, 
uh, Paul is actually quoting, uh, you have the Christ hymn there, and it seems Paul is actually quoting a hymn that predates Paul, So, which is actually interesting. So this is a tradition of talking about Jesus that's actually before Paul. So Paul, first writer, but this is something that even predates Paul, it seems. He's quoting something else. Paul didn't make up this Christ hymn. It doesn't appear that way, at least. Uh, and so in that Christ hymn, uh, Jesus is said to be in the very form of God, to be in the form of God. Now, like a lot of these, we can probably spend some time debating what that means for Jesus to be in the form of God. Uh, but that is different than it, it is different than saying Jesus is God. I mean, that that is not Paul saying Jesus is God. Now, we could argue that that's what he means, but that's not what he says. He says in the form of God. I just want to put that that's a debate for a, a different time. We can talk about uh, what that may or may not mean. Uh, in Colossians chapter 1, uh, Paul says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So in, in other words, God's invisible, God's spirit. We can't see God, but we see Jesus. And when we look at Jesus, we see God is in essence what Paul's saying. Now, the interesting thing there is Paul goes on to say he is the firstborn of all creation, which is probably why you have so many people answering that the question about uh, Jesus being the first and greatest created being. I would assume the reason the majority of evangelicals agree with that is because Paul actually says that. Now, I don't think Paul means that Jesus was a created being. But he does say that he was the firstborn of all creation. So, again, that would be a different episode. It would take a whole episode to dive into what Paul may or may not mean there. Um, but Paul does say that. Uh, Colossians Later on in Colossians, in chapter 2, Paul says that in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So you have deity, which is God, dwelling in bodily form. Um, again... That come that's not Paul does that's not Paul saying Jesus is God. He doesn't say that. Again, you could say that that's what he means, which is fine. Uh, but again, getting close. Uh, Romans chapter eight, he he calls Jesus the Son of God. We'll talk a little bit about more a little bit more about what that may mean when we get to the Gospels. Uh, in First Corinthians chapter two. In verse 16, Paul says that the mind of Christ is the mind of God, that we know the mind of God by knowing the mind of Christ. Um, the only time that Paul may explicitly be saying that Jesus is God, at least that it's possible the way his original audience would have heard it, uh, is when Paul calls Jesus Lord. Now, again, we could have a whole episode on this, so I'll try to summarize it quickly. Um, so the Greek word for Lord is used in the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Uh, so the Septuagint is the Old Testament in Greek. So the word Lord in the Septuagint is used for in place of the Hebrew word Adonai. In Hebrew, the word Adonai also means Lord. So you've got a Greek word for Lord, and you've got a Hebrew word 
for Lord. The Greek word is kurios. The Greek, uh, the, the Hebrew word is adon or adonai, depending on the, the context, what ending you're going to put on it. Uh, so those u- words in the Septuagint are used interchangeably, right? Because they mean the same thing. They both mean Lord. The interesting thing is, is that uh, you you may or may not be familiar with the fact that uh, at the burning bush, God names himself Yahweh. I am who I am. That was the God's name for himself, Yahweh. Well, the Israelite people believed that that name Yahweh, since God gave it to himself, was such a holy name, so sacred that they wouldn't say it. So when they were reading the Bible, the Old Testament out loud, and they came to the word Yahweh, they would say Adonai. They would say Lord instead of Yahweh. And because of that, when the term Yahweh was translated from Hebrew to Greek, they used the word kurios, Lord. And I'm hoping that makes sense because when they would read the Hebrew word, they would say Lord. So when they translated it to Greek, they just translated it as Lord. And I say that to say there's actually debate that when Paul calls Jesus Lord, is he using the Greek word Lord in the general sense that just means a king or a leader or an emperor or something like that? Or is he using it like it's sometimes used in the Septuagint to refer to God, specifically to Yahweh, God's name for himself? And the passage that people argue that Paul is doing that the most is in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, some people argue that Paul is reworking the Hebrew Shema, which is Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. When uh, it, I mean, when Moses, Moses is the one uh, speaking, when Moses says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Some people think that in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and you can go there and read it and see some similarities there between what Paul says and the Hebrew Shema. Some people think that Paul's reworking it and adding Jesus as Lord, as God, as Yahweh, using Lord in that way. Um, if that's the case, then that's very explicit, Paul saying Jesus is God. Or at least it would be to the audience that he's writing to, who knew all that background. It's not obvious and explicit to us, but it would have been to his original audience. Uh, so that's a possibility. I think I don't think Paul generally uses kurios, the Greek word for Lord. I don't think he generally uses that to call Jesus God or Yahweh. I think generally he's using it in its usual context. But there are various places, 1 Corinthians 8 being one of them, where Paul could be using it to call Jesus God. Um, But again, the point is that's very murky. And that's the closest that Paul comes to being explicit, is a very murky language use thing that's not at all obvious to us and that we have to kind of guess at 
what he may have meant or what his hearers may have heard when Paul said that. Uh, So Paul gets close, but doesn't say it. He was the earliest writer. You move on. uh, You now have the Gospels uh, that were written. So Paul, particularly Paul's earlier letters. Again, all this depends on when you date various letters from Paul and when you date the Gospels about how much overlap there is, is there overlap, all that kind of stuff. But the earliest things that we have are definitely Paul's first letters. Uh, The Gospels come later, at least later than the first letters of Paul. And uh, the first Gospels we have are the Synoptic Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke were the first Gospels that were written. And they kind of like Paul have some things that are maybe close, uh, but they never actually say that Jesus is God. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't. So, uh, for example, they'll talk about Jesus being the Son of God. But what's interesting is that's a term that's used in the Old Testament to talk about people. Jesus isn't the only one in the Bible called the Son of God. Uh, It's used in the Old Testament to talk about people that God was going to work through or that God was going to use for a special purpose. Um, He's called Son of Man which in the Old Testament is just used to talk about people. That's what it means. A son of a man is a person, is a human being. Uh, The word man there is also the word that can mean human being in Greek. So you could translate it son of a human being, which is a human being. Um, Jesus is called the Messiah. Again, that doesn't mean that he has to be God. Jews during the first century particularly prior to Jesus, would not have believed that the Messiah was God. They would have thought the Messiah was a human being that God was going to use to bring about the restoration of the people of Israel, uh, to establish a new kingdom. They would not have thought that the Messiah was God. Uh, And then it also talks about Jesus establishing the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus has come and established this new kingdom. Again, Uh, people would not have thought that that would have been God. That's not what would have come to a Jew's mind. They would have thought of someone like David, a son of man, someone that you could call a son of God, that God was going to work through this person, this Messiah, this king. That's another way to translate Messiah. King was going to come and establish the kingdom of God, like David, like Solomon, right? Like the kings of the past. That's what Jews during the time of Jesus would have thought about these terms. None of them, especially to the first hearers, would have immediately drawn them to say, oh, well, then Jesus had to be God because he's son of God, son of man, Messiah, because he's establishing the kingdom of God. That's not where any Jews of the first century would have gone. And so, again, the synoptic gospels, at least, are very unclear about uh, the identity of Jesus being God. Uh, the, However, you move towards the end of the first century, you get the gospel of John, the last gospel written. And the books of John, Revelation being the very last book of the New Testament written. So the works of John are at the end anyways, all of his works. Uh, The Gospel of John being the last gospel written. Uh, Again, Paul's early letters, the first, then you get the synoptic gospels, then you get the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is actually the only book in the New Testament that's explicit about Jesus being God. We see that, for example, in the prologue. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You can't get any more explicit than that. Well, you could. You could have said Jesus instead of the Word, but 
it's obvious what God, what uh, uh, what John is doing. Uh, Jesus is God right there at the beginning. But another characteristic of John's gospel is the I am statements, which show up throughout the gospel. Jesus says, I am this, I am that. Uh, and it, it seems that the way that John's using those statements is that, again, going back to the name that God gave himself in the Old Testament, Yahweh, means I am. I am or I am who I am or something like that. Uh, so Jesus using this phrase, I am, is a connection back to Yahweh, God's name for God's self. And it seems that in John's gospel, Jesus is taking that designation and putting him on himself and calling himself God by saying, I am. In other words, God, Yahweh, is these kinds of things. That seems to be the function in John's gospel, at least. So you have two things there, the prologue and the I am statements, if you interpret them that way. Uh, but the prologue, at the minimum, is very explicit. Jesus is God. But again, when you start from the beginning to the end, it's very interesting. It's like, well, Paul comes kind of close, but doesn't actually say it. The Gospels definitely don't say it. And then when you move to the end of the first century and you get John, John gets very explicit. But again, it's not till the end of the first century that you see an explicit statement like John. Which I don't know about you. It's just kind of fascinating to me when you look at it through that lens of date. Yeah. Um, we could add in here, I didn't think about this till now when we were going over notes earlier, you know, um, you could even add in, I think it's mostly Matthew, but it's probably all the synoptics to some degree, uh, where you have, uh, some of Jesus's statements or some of these miracles of his being done. And then you get the question of you know, who is this man or even like, you know, only God can forgive sins or things like that. But it's still just like left hanging. There is no, yeah, that's because I am God. Like there's, that's not there. And, or Matt and Matthew's not going to say, yeah, only God could do this. Jesus is God, but he doesn't say that it's like imply, like read it and understand and put your pieces together, but I'm not going to make that statement sort of thing. Yeah. And, uh, it's also interesting, particularly in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, some of that stuff, like you said, forgiving sins and uh, stuff like that, he never, uh, it, it just kind of left hanging. But at the same time, anytime it does come up or anytime Jesus is kind of asked a question like that, he like doesn't answer it. Yeah. Yeah, it's just like here. It's, uh, he, it's here. Uh, he, just he, put the pieces he, together. He intentionally avoids all of that, which is, again, fascinating. And we could talk more about historical Jesus and why Jesus may have done that as opposed to what it might mean in a particular gospel. Sure. For example, what a gospel writer is doing with that historical information. It's a different thing. But it's just fascinating to me. Um, we may be the only ones that this is fascinating. <laughs> if people are still tuned in, then I suppose they're still fascinated enough by it uh, to get to this point right here. Uh, so if it's not explicitly stated, you know, save uh, John's comments, the, the I am statements and some other pieces, and maybe uh, one of Paul's references uh, in 1 Corinthians. Uh, if it's not 
explicitly stated, but then you have all of these pieces that in and of themselves might not, but when you take all the pieces together and then why, why is the New Testament so vague about all of this? And I think we're going to continue kind of this trend of the timeline uh, as these things are being written here uh, to find that answer. Spencer, what do you want to say about the New Testament's vagueness uh, about this particular question? So this is my argument of why. And so, again, you can take it for what it's worth or throw it in the trash when I get done with it. I, you're not going to hurt my feelings uh, because there's multiple ways to explain it. Right. On the one hand, you could say, yeah, they're being explicit. They're just not using the sure. exact words. That's one way to deal with it. On the other hand, there are those that say they didn't believe that Jesus was God. That the reason it's not until John at the end of the first century is because the earliest followers and disciples of Jesus didn't believe that he was God. That came later. Um, so, again, there's two other options, neither one of which is the argument that I'm about to make. I guess mine kind of stands in the middle of those two somewhere. Um, and this is what seems to me the best explanation of the evidence as I know it and as we have it and as we have presented it. Uh, in this episode up to this point, albeit very briefly. And that is, is that a full understanding and appropriate language for Jesus as God, Jesus being God, seems to have developed over time in the early church. That the understanding of Jesus as God and the language to describe Jesus as God was not there early on. That's why Paul can get close but doesn't say it. That's why you don't see it in the synoptics. It's not until John at the end of the first century that you finally get a full understanding of Jesus as God and you get appropriate language to explain that belief. And here's some reasons why. I think first it's important for us to remember that the first Christians were all Jews. Early on, Christianity began as kind of a grassroots Jewish movement. All of which, all Jews, expected a very different kind of Messiah than they got in Jesus. Yep. Now, different groups of Jews had different messianic expectations, but none of them were what, were what we got in Jesus. Uh, nobody's idea of a Messiah was God becoming a human being, and you have this human that's fully God and fully human that was going to die the uh, death of a traitor on a Roman cross and rise from the grave three days later. That was, you can read everything that was ever written by a Jew. Uh, you, you don't get that outside of the New Testament. That was just not what they were expecting to happen. Uh, the Messiah was going to be a king like David, probably a human being that was going to come and by force free Israel from their slavery to Rome and establish a new kingdom. That wasn't the only thing messianic thought but that was part of it um, there was ideas of a new priest rising up too a lot of the times separate from the messiah so there were all those kinds of beliefs that's not what jesus gave us and because of that it would have taken time uh, to fully come to grips with and to understand what god had done in jesus i mean because you have to imagine there was no precedent for what happened with jesus that had never happened before and it's never going to happen again and it was so foreign to the way the early Christians and the uh, first century Jews 
thought that God was going to work, that it would have taken them time to fully come to grips and understand what just happened. I mean, put yourself in their shoes and just imagine I've explained it to people. It would be kind of like giving Peter a iPhone, right? It's just so foreign to anything someone in the first century could think of an iPhone, right? They're not going to figure out how to use it or all the different things that it can do day one. It's going to take them time to figure it out. And that's the same with Jesus. It's like on, on day one, they knew Jesus has brought the kingdom of God. Jesus has done something different. Uh, Jesus has done something to deal with sin, but we're going to have to think about it a little bit to fully figure out what that means, but not just what it means, but how to express it. What words do we use to express what we believe has happened in Jesus? Now, yes, I want to say the Holy Spirit was involved in that process. Right? It wasn't just human beings trying to figure out it out by their own power. I do think the Holy Spirit was involved and empowering them to do it. But that doesn't mean that on day one, after Jesus' resurrection, God just dumped all the information about what this means on them. Because that's never what God has done. He's never just dumped all the information possible on people, but God has always allowed our understanding and beliefs to naturally develop over time. Yes, God provides us with information. Yes, God's spirit works, but he always lets us develop at our pace. God never pushes us to develop faster than we need to. Just read the Old Testament. You see that. You see Israel's development over time as they grow with God. That's the way God has our always related to us, to allow us to grow with him. That's still what we're doing today, right? The reason that we're still studying and trying to figure out what the Bible means in different places is because God didn't just dump everything on us. He gave us information that allows us to grow with him over time. And we're still, like I said, we're still doing that today. Uh, So we need to understand that about the first hearers, the first followers of Jesus. However, I don't, it does seem to me that the belief in Jesus as God was there from the beginning. It just wasn't explicit and there hadn't been language yet developed to fully express that belief. Again, if you read scholars and books and stuff like that, that's a debatable take. But it does seem to me that belief in Jesus as God in some form was there from the very beginning. Because when you read through the New Testament and you read those examples that we've already given, what we see is that the early church believed that Jesus was the Messiah. They believed that Jesus created all things, that Jesus was involved in creation. Paul says that in multiple places. They believed that he was the one who brought about the kingdom of God. That's in essence the themes of the Synoptic Gospels is that Jesus brought about the kingdom of God or in Matthew, the kingdom of heaven. They believed that Jesus was the savior of the world, that Jesus did something to deal with the problem of Hmm. sin. Now, the way that's expressed is different. Different authors emphasize different things. Paul in different places emphasizes different things. But they all believed that Jesus was the savior of the world, that he did something to deal with the problem of sin. Jesus was also remembered in worship through the Lord's Supper. The early church took the Lord's Supper 
regularly. Every week when they were coming together, they were taking the Lord's Supper. So Jesus was an integral and intimate part of the worship of the early church. There were hymns that were sung in worship about Jesus. The example is that Christ hymn, Philippians 2, 6-11. We've referenced that. It predates Paul. It was probably a hymn that was sung in Christian congregations very, very early, and Paul takes it and puts it in that letter. And so Jesus was being sung about, it seems, uh, in the worship of at least some churches. I mean, we don't know what was going on in every churches, what their songs were like. Uh, but it, based on Philippians 2, it seems that at least some Jesus, there were songs just about Jesus that were being used in worship. Uh, we know for sure that prayer was directed to and through Jesus. We see that in Paul, uh, praying to Jesus, praying through Jesus, that Jesus is has some kind of role in our prayer to God. And so to me, when you take all those things together, it seems that, yeah, this belief about Jesus being God was there from the very beginning. It just wasn't explicit, that there wasn't language yet to fully describe who Jesus was. And to me, it seems like it it's very much like the theology of the Trinity, right? Uh, God being three in one is not there in the New Testament, at least not right. explicitly. It wasn't until actually hundreds of years later until the language was developed to express that because that was the problem. It's with the Trinity. It was we believe this and it was believed Christians have always believed this. Whether they realized it or not, that, that's a different thing. Not, maybe not all early Christians realized it, but they all believed it. They all expressed it in the way that they talked, in the way that they worshipped. They just didn't have language to describe it yet, right? And we still don't have good language to describe the Trinity. Um, and that developed over time, being able to figure out how to explain uh, our belief in the Trinity. The same thing happened with the establishment of the canon, that is, the, the, our New Testament scriptures, that developed over time, right? We didn't have a set New Testament canon from day one. First off, we didn't have documents. But even after all the documents were written at the end of the first century, it took time before that solidified into what we now have in our New Testament. And the reason that both of those things happened, the reason that Christians developed language to describe the Trinity— and the reason that Christians developed a New Testament canon was because of controversy that rose up. It, it, the, the first controversy was Jesus being God and not human, actually. And because of that, trying to you, you, you have those kinds of controversies about, well, who is Jesus and how does the Holy Spirit fit in? It's like, okay, we have these controversies. We have people that are kind of attacking the Christian beliefs. We have to solidify, well, what do we believe about God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit? Well, it wasn't important. I, I, I hope this makes sense. It wasn't important to explain that when there was no reason right. to. Because it was just kind of taken for granted. Well, everybody believes this. It was when people started attacking that belief and controversy started to rise up that church leaders were like, okay, we need to solidify, well, what do we believe? What is orthodox or correct teaching the same thing to do with with the bible uh it wasn't until probably marcion as we pronounce it it's actually martian is the correct pronunciation <laughs> but 
he put together his own Bible where he kind of cut apart parts of Paul and got rid of most of the Gospels other than Luke and all this kind of stuff. Um, and it was because of that controversy when someone creating their own Bible that's bits and pieces that Christians were like, okay, we probably need to decide what we consider scripture because you have people like Martian who are doing their own thing. And it's like, we know that's not right. What do we believe? And it wasn't creating something out of nothing. Both of those, they looked back and they're like, we already believe this. We just kind of have to put it down in writing almost. Yeah. Right. It was like, we already believed in the Trinity. We just have to figure out how to explain it or with the New Testament, it was these were already the books being used as authoritative in churches. It's like we just now need to make a list and solidify it. It seems to me that the same thing happened uh, with the identity of Jesus, that there was no reason to solidify our language about Jesus' identity until there were uh, Christian beliefs that be that, until the Christian belief began to be challenged until people began to challenge the belief in Jesus. Then it was time. Okay. We need to solidify who do we believe Jesus was. And this is what I think the catalyst was. What, what I think that challenge was that forced early Christians to be more explicit in their language about Jesus. I think the catalyst is what is called the parting of the ways that is the parting of the ways between Christianity and Judaism. So the first Christians were Jews. And when they became Christians, they didn't stop being Jews. They still celebrated the Jewish feasts. They still went to the synagogue. We actually see that in Acts chapter 4, that the early Christians attended the synagogue together. They attended the temple together, specifically, there in Acts chapter 4. So they continued going to the temple. They continued going to the synagogues. They continued doing that thing. Those kinds of things. And the reason is because early on, nobody saw a problem with that. In other words, non-Christian Jews didn't have a problem being at the temple or the synagogue with Jews who believed in this Jesus person. And the Christian Jews didn't have a problem being at the temple or at the synagogue with people who didn't believe in this Jesus person. Um, that's actually where Paul went to start teaching about Jesus, typically, is to the local synagogue. Where do we go from house to house? So they started very close together. Uh, but eventually they split off and you get two very distinctive religions as we see today. And the reason that Christianity and Judaism separated is at, at the heart, it has to do with what Christians believed about Jesus, that Christians believed that Jesus was God. And that's still one of the issues today. Right? If you talk to a Jew or even if you talk to a Muslim, one of their issues with Christianity is going to be that we believe in three gods. It, it's this Trinity aspect. Yeah. It's that Jesus is God. And so that was one of it, it's It's not the only thing that caused it, but it was one of the major things that causes this split between Christianity and Judaism. Well, like I said, they were very close together at the very beginning. The split begins to happen towards the end of the first century, and it seems by the time you get to the end of the first century that they've pretty much totally split into two very distinctive religions at the end of the first century. So again, that was a development. And it seems that that development coincides with the development of the language about Jesus, which is interesting. As 
Christianity and Judaism begin to split, the language about Jesus being God becomes sharper and sharper and sharper, more and more explicit. And so when you get to the end of the first century and the Gospel of John, it seems that the Gospel of John was written in the midst of this major separation, which seems to me why John has the most explicit language about Jesus' identity. When you read John's gospel, John has a polemic against the synagogue. He's very negative about synagogues, probably because you're having the split. Christians are being kicked out of synagogues because of their belief at the end of the first century or not allowed into the synagogues by the end of the first century. Not something that existed at the very beginning, but by the time you get to the end of the first century, that's a very common thing. We've talked about before that John identifies Jesus as the temple. Like, well, you don't need to go to the temple anymore. By the time John's written, the temple's destroyed. And John's like, well, that doesn't matter because Jesus is the temple. Those are very controversial things to Jews. Yeah. Right? Um, And it seems that the reason John is doing that, talking negative about the synagogue, Jesus is the temple, very explicit, Jesus is God, is because you're at this point where you're getting this major separation between Jews and Christians. And what that's doing is that's forcing Christians to explain, well, what do we actually believe? If these, if Jews, maybe even our family members and friends don't want to have anything to do with us because of what I believe about Jesus, I got to figure out what I actually believe about Jesus, right? Am I willing to give all of that up for Jesus? Well, what do I believe about him? Who do I believe that he is? That's why John's gospel ends with him saying, I wrote that so that you may believe You can also translate that so that you may go on believing. You already believe so that you can continue to believe, so that you can be strengthened in your belief. It very well may be because John is writing in the midst of this split as Christians are having to try to figure out, well, what do we believe? What am I willing to give up for my faith? Who do I believe that Jesus is? And so when they began asking those questions, what that did was it forced Christians to solidify their language about Jesus' identity. And it seems to me that they did that by looking back at all the things that they believed about Jesus. He's the Messiah. He's the creator of all things. He's the one who brought the kingdom of God. He's the savior of the world. We honor him in the Lord's Supper. We sing about him in church. We pray to him. We pray through him. They looked at all those things and realized that the only way all those beliefs could be true is if Jesus is God. That's what it has to mean, that the whole Christian thing falls apart if Jesus weren't, was not God. And so that's when you get John solidifying the language of being explicit. Jesus is God. And that's what you need to believe to be a Christian. And yes, that may mean you're kicked out of the synagogue and that your Jewish families don't want to have anything to do with you if you're a Christian Jew. But that's what Christians believe because that's the only way everything else works. And so it seems to me that the development of the language And belief that Jesus is God rests primarily on theological beliefs. Because again, it's other than John, it's kind of murky in the New Testament. But theologically, it's very solid. And it seems to me that that's what early Christians were thinking about too. That theologically, the only way for Jesus to do what we as Christians believe that he did is for Jesus to be God. And so when we, like the early Christians, reflect on what we believe Jesus did, then Jesus has to be God. And we've actually already talked about that. We had an episode, was it necessary for Jesus to be fully God? And we said yes, because he couldn't have done what we believe that he did. 
unless he was God. So theologically, yes, Jesus has to be be God. So while, yeah, might be at times a little murky in the New Testament, uh, it's there, I think. And it's solidified when Christians were forced to do that and reflect on all these things that were already there, that they were already believing, that they were already teaching, that they were already living based upon. They just hadn't yet put words to it. Because again, the whole thing falls apart. So go listen to that other episode um, where we talk about why things fall apart. We'll have that and the State of Theology survey uh, posted here uh, within the show notes on the website thinkingtheologically.org. I hope this episode was a good kind of look at not just answering this question, but also a good reminder of what thinking theologically looks like of uh, going through sometimes a num- like a long process of seeing statements made about somebody or seeing things that occurred uh, and putting those pieces together to try to understand, okay, this seems to be the, uh, the picture that's laid out. Um, Michael Heiser, a scholar that I enjoy, uh, phrases it like this, that there is a Uh, mosaic and that you have all of these pieces and phrases that are used and it's when you step back uh, from all of those things being put together that you go okay I see the image now Uh, but that requires a lot of work requires a lot of time requires a lot of diligence uh, being in the word and studying it uh, in order to get those ideas so uh, we hope that you leave here with uh, with a desire to go through Uh, and look at this question, uh, is Jesus God uh, yourself? Uh, And then we hope that you come back for our discussions on some of the other statements uh, from that survey uh, and the theological thinking that will follow. I'm Jack, that's Spencer, and we'll see you next time.